So I'm just going to toss this out right at the beginning. I didn't hate this episode. <laughs> we'll get to the specifics in the Y fours later, but I wanted to start with that because I imagine it's going to color everything you think about what I'm about to say because um, usually when I hear people talk about this episode, including myself, it is in a negative fa fashion. And uh, if you asked me yesterday what I thought of this episode, I would be like, Bleh. I was legitimately surprised how much I didn't hate this episode. Now that we got that out of the way. <sighs> Once upon a time, they were going to do a Star Trek show called Phase 2. I'm sure most of you have actually heard about this. Star Trek Phase 2 was going to be what they did instead of Star Trek The Motion Picture. A decent amount of Star Trek Phase 2 got baked into the motion picture and into early TNG. And in 1988, from about March to August, give or take, uh, there was a Writers Guild strike, which really knocked several TV shows across the, across the knees. You know, just took out their shins, and they were hobbling for a while. It was bad, is what I'm trying to say. <clears throat> now, I'm not willing to talk about whether that Writers Guild strike was good or bad or positive or whatever. This is just the fact. That Writers Guild strike caused a significant negative to several shows. And this one included. Because I've already talked about some of the impacts, but this episode and the next couple or so of episodes were all basically scripts that they were allowed to use, but not really around, allowed to do much with based on rules. And so these were effectively recycled script ideas. Point in fact, the child itself was a script idea that was written for Phase 2. And it's not the only one. They, they just kind of leave those things in the vault. I've talked about this process before. You know, people write in story ideas, they get paid for it. And then in the, in the concept, in the transference there, the writer loses the rights to it and the studio takes rights to it. And they basically, I mean, metaphorically, toss all those script ideas into a big vault and leave them there in case they need story ideas. A unfortunately large amount of season seven scripts uh, were using some of these ideas. But anyways, I'm getting off topic. So this was one of those phase two story ideas that they already had. They just had to rewrite some of the perspectives. Uh, readjusting Decker to Riker and Ilya to Troy was actually a pretty one-to-one -one transference, given how similar the characters were at this point in time. Everything else just needed a little bit of a readjustment, and they needed to add in a threat of the week. Because you always got to have a threat of the week. Like, very important. And thus we have this episode. Now, I'm not going to comment on everything that was different in Season 2, because quite a bit of it was, as is the norm. Oh, yawning deck. <clears throat> as I've mentioned before, it's very normal and indeed commonplace for a show to undergo significant changes under the hood between seasons especially early into a show. I've already kind of commented on this over in D-Space Nine's transference from Season 1 to Season 2. Anybody paying attention to this, especially any of you who've been watching this along with me, could tell immediately the difference in sets and costumes, you know, all the, all the little details and tidbits that they changed between Season 1 and Season 2. The really obvious stuff, like the inclusion of Ten Forward, you know, all that fun stuff. I'm not going to comment on every single detail, but I will say, as weird as this may sound... This episode looked more like the TNG I remember than everything I've seen in Season 1. Just commenting on that. You know, they, they've kind of started to work on the look. It will actually be the first episode of Season 3 when they fully codify what will eventually become, or I should say, what will be the look of TNG pretty much from that point onward. 
Now, I do want to give credit to Rob Bowman. In my research leading up to this episode, I usually look up writers, directors, original script ideas, that kind of thing, before I even watch the episode, just to have an idea of who I'm looking at. Um, sometimes I do it after because I forget, but in this case, I looked at it before and I saw Rob Bowman, and I'm like, huh. See, Rob Bowman, I've already brought him up before. He was the director of Data Lore. And as a quick reminder, in case you don't remember what I said in that episode, he was handed a bad script and tried to turn it into a good story. And if you remember, there were significant issues in Data Lore, but I still enjoyed that episode, and at least in part because of the directing and the acting. You can already tell where I'm going with this. By the way, Rob Bowman, for those of you who don't remember me saying this before, also directed Q Who. Anyways, so <clears throat> I have a feeling he was handed a very similar situation here, because... This is not a good script. Like, it, it breaks down the more you analyze it. It's, it's one of those scripts, right? It is, in fact, I would actively go so far as to say a bad script. You know, the, the, the construction of the scenes, the sequence of dialogue between characters, the plot points such as they are. It's another one of those episodes that just feels like it kind of meanders because it doesn't really have a point to make. And, oh, then there's the thread of the week, but then it's solved. Like, they bring up the threat of the week, and then they have a guy who can't act. I'm sorry, the, the guest star playing the, the elder doctor, I can't even remember his name, was not a good actor. And I've talked many, many times before about guest star actors in Star Trek, so let's just move on. He was not good, so he's like, oh, you don't understand, everything's doomed, and everything's going to hell, and he just keeps re-emphasizing in a very awkward sort of a way just how bad things are, and then in literally the next scene, the dilemma is resolved. Huh? <clears throat> I also know I'm skipping ahead excessively, but what the hell was going on with Marina Sirtis' acting in that scene? I'll, I'll get there later. I'll get there later. Let's, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. So I mentioned Rob Bowman for a reason, though, because the intro uh, scenes, I guess, but it's effectively one scene. It's several cuts. was really well done. It very quickly, efficiently, and and in, in, in what I would usually refer to as good visual storytelling, establishes what has changed, what is new, and the premise of the episode. All very cleanly and neatly, and very uh, it's very uh, efficient, I guess is the word I want to use. We get a lot of information in a brief period of time. First thing we see is the shuttle bay, which is a new set. We haven't had a shuttle bay before, so that's new. Um, I'm actually pretty sure we haven't seen shuttles before this, too. So that's also new. I mean, we, I know we saw the crash shuttle back in Skin of Evil, but we haven't really seen shuttles in action, the shuttle model proper. So, shuttle bay, shuttles, and then we cut up, and the first thing we see is Worf, new bandolier, the one he'll be wearing pretty much from now on, and his new uniform. Then we see Riker and his beard. And, and then we cut over to the new consoles, and I know that when I say new, what I mean is slightly redesigned and readjusted. The con and the other one. I can't remember what it is. There's like the navigation and then the other navigation. The two consoles up front. I can't think what they're called. Oh my gosh. But anyways, the con and the other one. Those two uh, have been readjusted and, re and, and moved into the position they will be for the rest of the show. Um, then we cut to Jordy. This is the only time that that actual storytelling exposition starts happening. Is Now all of a sudden Jordy starts saying, yeah, chief engineer. Woo. Other than that, very efficient, very good thing. And I like pretty much all the directing in this episode. They do a lot of what I would refer to as good directing, pretty much the whole thing. I'm not going to comment piece by piece, but if, if you have an eye for that thing or, you, or if you've been watching this with me, you probably know what I'm talking about. Um, 
Now, oh yeah, and then the next scene after the Geordie scene is in 10 forward. <laughs> Again, establishing the new scene. And Guinan. I'll be talking more about a lot of these specific points later. The first thing I want to talk about really quick is the Riker Maneuver. I know this is a really weird place to talk about it, especially since this is actually not the first instance of the Riker Maneuver in Star Trek. The first instance was back in uh, Coming of Age, I believe was the episode, where Commander Rennick was examining the crew, the lead into Conspiracy. That's actually the first time we ever saw the Riker Maneuver. But from this point on, from this episode on, it'll start becoming a lot more common and prolific as his method of sitting on those tiny little chairs. Now, Riker, that is to say Jonathan Frakes, is about four inches taller than me. So that's, you know, that's like about, I can't even put it on the camera. It's like right here. He's decently taller than me. He is not exactly short, so he can pull that maneuver off. But the really weird thing is I've never found what I consider to be a 100% definitive answer for why he does the Riker maneuver. The closest thing I've gotten is a story from a Reddit thread that has been reported over and over and over and that Will Wheaton has confirmed was actually him. Wheaton himself said, yes, this is true. But that's it. Like, there's no, I've never been able to find some interview with Jonathan Frakes or, you know, like some video footage, like I'll just talk about later with Gates McFadden, about why the hell he does that. And near as I can tell, and again, big asterisk, this was something he was doing because he had injured his back, and so he started doing this thing called the Riker lean, where he kind of leans a little bit while he's on the set. If you notice, he does this a lot. Um, and it just kind of became a habit for him, and because of his injury, it was easier to just sit down that way, since he's tall enough to accomplish that, and, you know, it, it wouldn't hurt his back. Speaking of someone who has back issues in general, I could totally see the appeal of that, assuming I was tall enough to get over the massively high-backed chair I have, which I am not. But in, like, a normal office chair, yeah, I could probably do that. I, I wouldn't. It would look really weird, because I'm not nearly as practiced or as smooth as Jonathan Frakes. Let's talk about, ah, jeez, what do I want to talk, um, let's talk about Gates McFadden next, okay? Now, the reason there's something to talk about here is because to this day we do not know the 100% confirmed reasons, and I do believe it's a plural, why Gates McFadden ended up leaving the show. Now, we do know why she came back. We know that with high certainty because there's written and documented proof of them, of Rick Berman reaching out to her, of Patrick Stewart reaching out to her, and of fans reaching out to the studio. All those things are basically what I like to call documented proof. But there's no real documented evidence about why she left, just people talking and giving their stories, and a lot of those conflict, and... Some of them say one thing, and some of them don't even mention that thing, and some mention this thing, but not this thing, and it's just this whole morass. Now, I've been curious about this problem for many years, and I decided to do a little bit of a deep dive onto this one. I was lucky enough to actually catch some footage of Gates McFadden at a convention, where she was asked flat out what happened. Now, I don't want to call her a liar, per se, but I don't think what she told in that interview, when she was asked that question at a convention, was the 100% truth. That's my opinion. But I also don't think that she was deceiving for any untoward means, because one of the things that you'll notice if you really pay attention to a lot of actors, producers, and uh, studios in, in Hollywood in general, I don't know if this is true in other countries, is there's sort of this unspoken, we don't talk about it thing that goes on. Um, 
you know, if you have a political tiff with some, because there's a lot of politics in Hollywood, as I've kind of mentioned before. Uh, so if you have some kind of disagreement or tiff with someone and then you are let go, it is considered bad form to say, oh, well, he thought this and I thought this and therefore I left, right? So based on all of the evidence such as it is, here's what I think happened. I think what happened is that the studio was undergoing a significant political divide as battle lines were quote-unquote being drawn. I kind of mentioned this back in Conspiracy. Uh, this was the point in time which we have a fairly high certainty that, although even that I have to put the asterisk next to, that, um, oh God, not Joe Minoski, the other one. I just, that's the wrong name. I'm getting my names confused. Uh, shoot, I can't think of his name. Bob was really trying for a power play to try and become the mainliner of the show. I'm looking his name. Maurice Hurley, there it is. Maurice Hurley was really trying for a power play to take over the show. Now, it's interesting to note that virtually every interview from everyone ever since then puts Maurice Hurley in a pretty negative light. I've never really been able to definitively say why. I don't have a 100% answer to that question. But I bring that up because I have a weird feeling that Maurice Hurley, who did lose this particular political structure, as we know, you know, this, this, this struggle, he lost this, and he ended up bowing out of Star Trek as a result, or possibly was fired. We're not really sure on that one. Um, but I feel like this was just another political game. I think that Gates McFadden had landed on the side of the argument that was not a Maurice Hurley side. And Maurice Hurley was the one who was pushing for changes and to re restructure the show. I mentioned the con continuity thing uh, in previous episodes. And when she... So Gates McFadden says she was trying to have more uh, control, more, more say in her character. A fairly common thing for actors to want, actually. In fact, I've mentioned this over on Voyager as well. Several of the actors, you know, by season three were like, can I have a little bit of say in my character? Because I don't really feel like I'm doing much. Um, Gates McFadden wanted more input on how her character went. And Maurice Hurley uh, probably... See, okay. <laughs> this is where it gets into pure speculation. I think this is just a power play. I think this is just him flexing his muscles. I, I really do. I know there's allegations of sexual misconduct. I know that. I've been kind of dancing around that because I have found nothing corroborating that at all. And I really hate to just kind of point that out, especially in the current uh, political climate, without even a scrap of evidence. Again, even Gates McFadden herself doesn't mention any of this, although that's not necessarily indicative. So it's a big who knows. That is possible. I will absolutely admit that. Although, weirdly enough, the one person who I have a little bit more evidence of sexual misconduct, I shouldn't say that that way, um, for being a dick to women, that's a little bit more accurate, uh, is actually Rick Berman, which is weird because Rick Berman is one of the people who really championed getting Gates McFadden back, but I'm getting off topic. The point being, I don't find there to be convincing enough evidence to say that that's part of it. However, I do find convincing enough evidence to say that Maurice Hurley was playing at politics, that he was trying to take over the show, that she wanted more of a say in her character, and he was like, oh, okay, and basically shoved her out. According to McFadden herself, she was surprised when she was let go. Oh, yeah, and by the way, by most accounts, she was let go. She didn't leave. Although, again, not sure what happened there. So, again, this is just my take on it. If you've heard something different, it may or may not be true. I don't know. This is a big Elder Scrolls situation here. But that's my take. Political games, got rid of her, and then 
<laughs> repeated outcry from multiple people, including the fans, is what led to her coming back. It is, however, so that's all I have to say about that. I really don't have anything else to add. It is just a huge mass of who knows. But I had to talk about it because it's my job. But we also have to now talk about Pulaski. Now, Pulaski is such a weird sticking point that when I first started the TNG Rumination series, and up until now, I have actually had discussions about Pulaski, just Pulaski, no less than five times. And that's counting in person, too. Now, that may not sound like a lot, because, you know, it's been a few months. But considering that more than once I have had an, an in-depth in discussion with someone about Pulaski, way before we ever got to Season 2, says a lot about how polarizing of a character she was. Now, if you asked me yesterday what I thought about Pulaski, I'd say that I don't really care for her. I, I don't. I have nothing against the actress whatsoever. In fact, I think she's a pretty good actress. She is definitely a television actress, whereas McFadden is more of a theatrical actress, and you can kind of tell the difference in their presentation. Um, but whether I liked her or not, no, I would say easily no. It's easy to understand, I think, why most people don't like her. And it's because of this episode. This is just my opinion, of course. I'm sorry, I should clarify that. But... In this episode, we ha what's the first thing that we find out about her? She has completely violated protocol, has not even checked in with her captain. They have comm badges. It would take her five seconds to say, Captain, I'm checking in on a medical emergency with your counselor. Bam! Done. She doesn't do that. Picard, a little miffed about this, goes down to meet her, and Worf says a line that really, I think, says everything that needs to be said about Pulaski. Uh, not the best way to meet your new captain. That line, if you replace the word captain with the word audience, is everything you need to know about Pulaski, in my opinion. Because this episode does not portray her in a positive light at all. And this is the first episode we're introduced to her in. She's here for all of season two. And yet, when I hear Pulaski discussed, both in the past and in the last few months, you know, the five instances I mentioned, almost every specific incident that people remember off the top of their heads, you know, the stuff that they can just come to immediately is stuff from this episode. You get where I'm going with this? So, first of all, she's rude and an idiot. So then Picard goes down to meet her. Um, there's a nice scene that I'll talk about in a minute with Wesley, but I, I want to stay on this Pulaski trend for the moment. So then Picard basically gives her a dressing down. Now, he is polite about it, but this is a formal military style. It is, I, I don't know what kind of, you know, policies or procedures you have on the previous ship, but on this ship we do like to ha actually follow some rigor of protocol and blah, blah, blah. In other words, she is being reprimanded. She then interrupts his reprimand to point to the medical dilemma that she's dealing with. Now, again, yes, it is a medical dilemma. In fact, to be blunt, I think the episode doesn't emphasize enough how serious of a situation this is, and I'll talk about that later, too. But again, if it really is that serious, tap, hey, medical emergency, tap, is not really that hard to do. So, we're already two strikes against her, and we've barely met her. She's been on screen for like ten seconds. You see where I'm going with this? She is not positively presented. Um, to continue talking about her... One of the next things that mentions is, and I, forgive me for not writing down the whole quote, I only have so much room on my sheet here, but 
When Data offers to be basically the person there at the table for Troy, it is Pulaski who says, oh, no, 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 she needs the, the, the warm touch, the warm comfort of a human touch, not the cold, cold touch of technology or something like that, uh, you know, paraphrased. It is then Troy who says, no, no, I want Data here. I'm just going to take a quick segue to say that that actually makes a lot of sense to me. Not that I think Troy and Data are particularly close, but I think, as weird as this may sound, Data's actually a really good choice for that. Someone who will be, for lack of a better term, a rock when Troy needs a rock. She's about to give, she's about to give birth. It's a very unpleasant experience, at least uh, normally. And, of course, Data is someone who really, really wants to know more about life. I know it's always described as him being more human. They even say that phrase several times in the episode. But to me, it's always been much more about life and literally seeing birth. I mean, Data says it all afterwards. Thank you for letting me be a part of this. Nice moment. Touching scene, even. I'll get more to that later, though. Because we've got to keep talking about Pulaski. So then, Pulaski, let me skip down. What's the next scene? The next scene that is brought up is when she calls Data, Data. Now, that is an innocent mistake, although, considering other people have said his name before, however, I have to admit that even upon hearing a pronunciation of a name, it takes significant effort for me to alter a pronunciation name in my mind. I do have that problem, and I admit it. Now, if I try, I can do that, and I usually do make the effort, especially with, you know, my viewers, for example, I try to pronounce their name correctly in Twitch chat, you know, I'm really big, I'm really big on trying to do that because of respect, because I want to, because I actually want to. But I have to admit, if it was someone who I didn't respect, like a machine I don't recognize as a living being, it would be easy for me to not really process that it's data and just kind of say data without really meaning to. Not a big deal. Now, what becomes a big deal is everything after that, because immediately after that innocent, it could have been just data, uh, excuse me, oh, it's data, huh? It's data. Oh, oh, sorry. And that's all you really needed to do with that. The same point is made that Pulaski doesn't view Data as a person. Simple, easy, efficient. But instead, what happens is, well, what's the difference? And that's where sympathy just falls away. Because at that point, I mean, Data's response says it all. One is my name, the other is not. I mean, Loray Runaire is not something I tend to be like to be called, because... That's not my name. Granted, Lore Runner isn't my name either, but you get the point. If someone walked up and called me Bob, I'd be kind of bothered by that too. So then she decides to snark at him. I have to admit, in memory, I remember her, her tone as being more smarmy than it actually is. Because it's not actually that bad. If you watch the scene, she, what she says is a dick. Let's just make that clear. This is a dick move. She is basically being rude to him. Let's just make that as clear as possible. But she's not doing it in an over-the-top way. In fact, she's being kind of... I guess the tone I want to use, the term I want to use, is she's almost poking fun at him. It's not quite there. It's not like the kind of friendly ribbing that you'd see between friends. But it's more like just, oh, <laughs> right, right. Is there something in here for... You know, it's, it's just lightly mocking, but not truly acerbic, right? And then I noticed something I don't think I've ever noticed before. After he leaves, she says, oh, goodbye, Data. Data, Data. And she corrects herself on that. You can kind of see, <laughs> this is just weird, but 
I think I'm going to go ahead and stop talking about Pulaski now, because I think that's actually everything I have to say about her being irritating. I'm just checking my notes really quick. Yeah. You could see why, fan, why these scenes would leave a lasting impression on fans. First, she's rude to Picard, arguably the main character of the show. And she does so in a frankly needless way. So she doesn't really establish her medical cred or her uh, personable skills, right? Then, she's rude to Data twice. One way which was understandable, you know, that's just bias, you know, it's the beginning of a character arc, basically, and one way in which is her being a dick, although she does apologize for it afterwards, so it means something. But I print this out because Data is one of the most beloved characters in TNG, especially at the time. Nowadays, if you look back, Data tends to be lumped in the big three of TNG. There's always a big three in Star Trek. You ever notice that? You know, it was, uh... Oh, excuse me, it was Kirk. Oh my god, Kirk, Spock, and Bones. Back in the original series, and in TNG, it is... Well, actually, I've heard several people give several different answers, but it's usually Picard, Riker, and Data are the big three. Not necessarily the best characters, but certainly the most memorable, and they get the most screen time. And Data is a hugely beloved character, and Pulaski's being a dick to him. So you can kind of see why these would leave lasting impressions. Other than this, she didn't really bother me in this episode. And that's something I've said five times over the last uh, couple of months. I have, no, I have said, flat out, I have no idea what I will think of Pulaski going through with analysis mode on. Too many times my opinion has changed with analysis mode on, with really digging into a work as, as, as far as I am capable of going. And so far, I'm only one episode in, so far my opinion on Pulaski has changed because I didn't like her. I don't care for her here, but I don't hate her with the same, you know, veracity that I did before. It's a a portmanteau of veracity and ferociousness. You gotta really work on that new vocabulary because apparently I'm an idiot. Anyways, now that I've done talking about Pulaski, let's talk about the scene. So there's a C-plot to this episode of Wesley leaving the ship. It is probably sad that there are no less than three scenes that I like in this episode that are the C-plot. In fact, one of my favorite memorable scenes from this episode before I rewatched it is from that C-plot. Wesley has this scene in the turbo lift. Wesley is awkward. Picard is awkward. Right up until Wesley mentions it'll be weird leaving the ship. Now, this is actually brilliantly subtle, and I'd like to credit the director and the actors for this, because the script doesn't really have the subtlety needed for this. But maybe it's the script, too. Excuse me, maybe it's the script, too. I don't know. This was new material. Obviously, this wasn't part of the original Phase 2 episode. The moment Wesley opens up about the ship, Picard opens up almost immediately. Like, the whole scene, he said, like, three lines. Like, yep, going to see your mom again. You know, just trying to make small talk. No idea what to say. Then Wesley talks about something Picard can relate to, being a Starfleet officer. Then Picard just kind of relaxes, starts talking more naturally and openly, and says, you know, it's part of the job, and, you know, it's something you have to get used to, and it never does get easy. It's always hard to leave your ship. And it's just, suddenly there's just this warmth there that wasn't there, because now Picard can relate. They They have a connection point there of that Starfleet service. And then, of course, Wesley says, well, the Enterprise just isn't any old ship. And Picard says, no, she isn't. Nice scene. Surprisingly good. Then we get to, you know, Picard being interrupted by Pulaski. I already mentioned that, really. Um, I have a note here 
that says Magic Baby. <laughs> I want to I want to just bring that point up here. I've talked many many times about the suspension of disbelief. So just to cover in brief, everyone has some things that they can tolerate that will you know bend the suspension of disbelief, and then some things that will break it to the point where you know the suspension is lost and now you're out of it. That's always going to vary from person to person. For me, the magic baby was something that broke that barrier. Because it is a magic baby. There is no other way to phrase this. Ignoring the fact that he gestates in an incredibly fast rate with no like, negative effect to the person whose body is being expanded in days rather than months. Ten months. They actually say that. Uh, Betazoid gestation period is ten months. And then she gives birth with no pain... Which is, for anybody who knows anything about giving birth or pregnancy, is many levels of ludicrous. And then he starts growing up. And, okay, actually, I have to admit, from that point on, him growing up quickly, that actually doesn't bother me. As weird as that may sound. But the the whole, like, the impact this should be having on Troy is practically non-existent. Pulaski even says, and I'm paraphrasing here, uh, you know, if, if I did a scan today, I couldn't tell that she had a baby or that she's ever had a baby. No side effects or consequences whatsoever. It is basically magic. So that's, that's what I mean by put, pre, penetrating the suspension of disbelief thing. The idea of a child growing up very quickly because they're actually an energy being, okay, I can buy that. The idea of a child being born inside of a woman and having zero impact on her whatsoever, that's a little bit past me. Moving on. So then Troy is off to the side. Weird blocking choice uh, during the meeting and then Riker says who's the father <laughs> I, I really wish they had done a couple more takes on that because the way Frakes says that you can almost tell he's trying not to laugh as he's just like who's the father I don't mean to be blunt who you been sleeping with God um, <laughs> of course there was no father because it was an energy being um, although it, what's funny is they, they actually give away this early on uh, ignoring the fact that we obviously see the energy being literally enter her, because the child is a template of her. It just happens to be a male template. Half human, half Betazoid, just like her. If you're paying attention, that gives across the point. This is not a biological child in any sense, because a half Betazoid, half human would have to be mating with a half Betazoid, half human to produce a half Betazoid, half human. It's it's a fairly unlikely cer series of circumstances. One of the reasons why I'm like one uh, eighth, I think, Lebanese, and like uh, God, I actually forget all the ratios. But you, you get my point, right? It it divvies up significantly depending on your your bloodlines and who you mate with, and blah blah blah. Anywho, then I'm I'm gonna say something that's gonna make make me very unpopular, and whatever. I don't want to start a big controversy about abortions. But then the episode spends several minutes talking about aborting the baby. <laughs> so I kind of can't avoid talking about this. Now let me just say, ignoring whatever you believe or whatever I believe about abortions or whether it should be or whether it shouldn't be or whatever, let's just leave that out the window because I think in this exact circumstance, discussing the possibility of aborting this child is at least something that should be discussed. Not saying it's right or wrong, but it should be brought up. Why? Because she didn't have sex with anybody. Now, forgive me for putting it so bluntly, but this is not a normal child. It's not like 
Troy is having a child with, you know, with Riker, or with Bob from engineering, or with some guy that she met on Numbers 2 or whatever, there is no actual, this is not a normal child situation. This is a legitimate security threat. One of the crew members has been impregnated by an alien without her consent. I think the idea of aborting it is something that is completely reasonable. And the security threats that are brought up make perfect sense. In fact, to be blunt, if anything, I think, think they, should have, they should have had more security. Now, I know this probably isn't super easy to understand, or maybe I'm just not making my point correctly, because I'm an idiot. So let me try to use an analogy I thought of that would make this make a lot more sense. Imagine the movie Alien, or Aliens, or any of the Xenomorph things. You probably already see where I'm going with this, because you've probably seen those movies, or at least know about the Xenomorphs. <laughs> now, obviously, she didn't have a face hugger plump, pump stuff down her throat. But the relative equivalent has happened. Something has impregnated her with something that she did not choose or want to be in her. The fact that it's being born more normally, magic baby aside, does not change the fact that this is an invasion. This is a security risk. Imagine if the child popped out in a slightly less pleasant fashion. I mean, the security guys there being there for a frickin' xenomorph popping out would be a lot more understandable, wouldn't it? Anyways... I bring this up because the episode, and especially Pulaski, tend to treat this like it's a normal pregnancy, like it's this big, wonderful, amazing event. And I understand why that is. That's because it looks like a pregnancy. But it really isn't when you really break it down. Like, if we're to accept, if the, the suspension of disbelief is gone, so we can no longer treat, I can no longer treat this as a pregnancy. This is now an energy being that is using you as a means to procure a new body. I would call it fully parasitic, but that could be debatable. Since Troy does get something out of the deal, therefore it would probably be more symbiotic. Regardless, you can kind of understand how this is the sort of situation where, oh, you don't understand, it's just a normal baby child. There's nothing untoward about this. Like, the fact that she keeps, she's so snarky to Worf. Like, come on, stay back, security team. I would have almost laughed if it had popped out and then attacked Pulaski. And she's like, security, security! Now, I know that sounds weird, but again, remember, in universe, in character, they had no idea what was coming out or what it was going to do. And yes, I'm going to say it because they don't know it's a he or a she or anything. This is an alien thing. I digress. Now, Troy herself is the one who ends the abortion discussion. She says, it's my choice, and I am going to have this child. And then Picard says, well, I suppose that's the end of the discussion. I agree with that. Because, you know, that is kind of her choice, in my opinion. And this is where people are just going to kill me with sticks. Because I do think it is her choice in this case. There's no father involved. It is purely her and whoever might be affected by her on the ship. So we'll post security, which they do, but she has made the choice that this is going to happen. I will say I don't agree with her reason for making the choice, but that is not my decision to make. I'm not having the baby. <sighs> Although you could argue she's not either, but let's get it. Let's, let's move on. Let's move on. <clears throat> so, uh, 
I actually have several notes over the pregnancy thing talking about the magic baby thing. I've kind of already covered that. I want to give credit to the directing and the editing for the birthing scene. I kind of hinted at this briefly earlier. Usually, there's only a couple of ways you do pregnancy in television. And if you've fo followed television in general, even Voyager actually follows the same trends, it always hits the same general beats within a couple of things. You know, there's pregnancy under duress, there's pregnancy which is done for comedy, and then there's pregnancy which is treated as a big moment, like a, like a culmination of a character arc kind of a thing. And then all of these tend to follow the same general representation. Ah! Okay, push! Yeah! You know, you, you've seen it before. If you've seen one television pregnancy, you've seen them all. Except this one does something unique. And this is the one and only reason I'm willing to forgive the magic baby thing. Because it zooms in on Troy's face. And I gave Marina Sirtis crap earlier for something I will bring up later. But I will actually give her credit. Most of her acting in this episode is actually pretty good. The way she acts through most of it is spot on. And not quite subtle, but leaning more towards subtle than not. Um, and so it zooms in on her face, and there's just this kind of almost sense of wonderment there. And the audio in the background dims away, and you can hear the usual pregnancy stuff other than the ah, going on in the background. But it just focuses in on her. And you can almost feel the, for lack of a better term, mysticism of the moment. And then the baby, is, the baby comes out, and it's done. I liked that. It was a nice touch. And it's rare that I look at Star Trek and say, that was a good artistic choice. So I wanted to give credit for that one. Um, then Data says, thank you. I already brought that up. That was, that was a good scene. I liked it. Data, obviously, he was a bit too annoying earlier, if I'm to nitpick a little bit. His inquisitions and losing himself in the moment. A little bit too typical father situation, because that's the, the role the dad usually has in this portrayal. But I did like, you know, thank you for letting me part of this. This was truly fascinating. That was awesome. Then, <laughs> then we have the scene where, you know, they, Picard's, you know, Picard talks to Pulaski and then they go talk to Ian, who is now capable of talking at one day old. Now, I like how the episode actually bothers to be dun-dun-dun, and all the actors make it clear how serious this is, because it is. I like this for one and only one reason, because the episode kind of drifted a little bit into the wonderment of life, you know, miracle of birth, this is a wonderful thing, pretty much hitting us, human beings, the viewers watching this, right in that soft spot of childbirth, because there's this little soft spot for that, whether it's biological or emotional or, or spiritual or mystical or magical or technological or biological or whatever, I think I already said biological. You get my point, though, that most human beings tend to get have this little soft spot for birth and the miracle thereof. So it hits us right in that spot, and then it kind of slams our face into the desk by like, oh yeah, by the way, no really, this is an alien and this is a threat. And I like that. I wish it paid off later, but I do like that, because when we see the day-old child saying hi, it's like, oh, oh crap, okay. Now, before I continue talking about that, i got to segue for a moment to talk about Guinan, because... Well, because I don't have much... Actually, no, no, no. I'll talk about Guinan last. Let me try to keep this cohesive. Because the next thing I want to talk about is how the rest of the episode just kind of blurs. 
because this is when the B plot or the A plot, depending how you define it, you know, the whole threat to the ship comes up. Oh my God, we're all going to die because there's going to be like, no matter what you think it is, it's worse than that. And it's going to break out and it's going to destroy everything and everyone. It'll create a monument to non-existence. Um, so as Kafka here is trying to tell us exactly how messed up things are, it starts raining really heavily. <laughs> and um, we have, it's just, yep, okay, threat, oh, it's Ian, oh, he's dead. And then this is the scene I made fun of for Marina Sirs. I'm sorry. I have actually seen mothers in real life whose children have been in mortal danger. That is unfortunately something I have been witness to more than once with more than one person in my life. I know how they act. It's not like that. It's not, well, no, no. And it's, I wouldn't make so much fun, but it's jarring since she did a really good job for basically the rest of the episode. When she was more subdued, or when she was acting with her facial expressions, or the slight cadence of her tone, how she was almost hesitant to speak. That was all good stuff. And then she just turns into, blah, blah, medical, medical. That's why I want Data and Riker here, too, for some reason. <laughs> Like I said, the script has some issues, but moving on. Then Ian dies, and by dies, of course, I mean he leaves. I'm not sure why he doesn't hang around, but whatever. He just wanted to see things, blah, 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 exposition, exposition, moving on. I, I admit I have no investment in this, so the moment Ian dies and leaves, it's like, yeah, all right, whatever. I'm not really sure what Troy realistically thought was going to happen in that situation, but it's also worth noting that it's been only a few days since she gave birth, so I imagine she wasn't really thinking logically at the time. I, I can forgive that. And then the ship is saved, blah, blah, blah. Now, <clears throat> oh yeah, and then there's the final scene with Wesley, uh, which I'm actually skipping over the second scene with Wesley because I want to talk about it later. I know this sounds weird. Bear me out. But the final scene with Wesley, I have to admit, kind of made me smile a little bit. Just a little bit. You know, the whole, the, they're, they're just ribbing him on the bridge. Went on a little bit too long. But then it cuts to Worf. You know, who's going to tuck him in at night? Come on, Commander. And then it cuts to Worf. I will shoulder that responsibility. Just too super straight-faced. The way he, Dorn delivers that line is perfect. It makes me laugh even to this day. Wow, it is raining hard. Can you guys hear that? Obviously, I won't find out for months. Um, then... And then, you know, he decides to stay because of the advice he was given, which brings me to the final thing I want to talk about, and that is Guinan. Uh, and kind of ten forward, but mostly Guinan. Question for you guys. Now, obviously ten forward was always part of the Enterprise-D. I think we can say that pretty definitively. I find it immensely unlikely that in between Season 1, you know, in between the Neutral Zone and the Child... They suddenly ran off and got an entirely new thing set up there in, in 10 Forward. I think that's pretty reasonable to say. I mean, it's not like they didn't have a shuttle bay before, right? <laughs> Just because we didn't see it. Here's my real question for you. When do you think Guinan joined the ship? Like, when did you think she went onto the, onto the ship and joined the crew? Now, I've heard several different arguments and several different perspectives on this. Now, what's funny, and I can imagine some of you lunging to your comment section right now to say, well, in this episode, she says, well, I never met the, the captain until joining the ship. Which implies, and the way she phrases it, it's pure implication, implies that she joined in Season 2. She became the bartender in Season 2. Thing is, other statements contradict that. 
obviously there's time zero. I'm not even going to go into the fact that she met Picard a few hundred years ago. Let's, let's not even touch that. But more to the point, in Best of Both Worlds, I believe it's part one, she flat out states that Picard had privately and personally asked her to join the crew. Now, that doesn't necessarily state with 100% certainty things, but it implies heavily that the two had already met and become friends before either of them were on the Enterprise-D. And thus, it is very reasonable to assume that when Picard was finally born and reached of a certain age, probably, you know, relatively recently, Guinan probably sought him out. And, or, or, or coincidentally ran into him, which would be even funnier. And then Guinan either recognized him or, of course, was seeking him out to begin with, and the two began their friendship. And because the two just clicked so well, and will continue to throughout, it's, it's a common trend that Picard and Guinan have this really just great chemistry, that they just get each other perfectly. Guinan herself calls it beyond friendship and beyond family. So that click, is it makes sense why he would have put so much faith in her, why he would trust her so much. We will see an alternate Picard put an immeasurable amount of faith in her in season three. I don't know about you guys, but I find it hard to believe that, that, would be, that he would be willing to do that without the pre-existing relationship. Which brings me back to my point. When do you think she joined the crew? I think she joined when the Enterprise-D launched. I think he personally invited her onto his new ship, the flagship of the Federation, or the Starfleet, excuse me. And I think they met long before she came onto this ship. And I'm not even talking about the Time Zero stuff. Which only brings up the really weird question, why does she lie to Wesley? Now, what's interesting is if you pay attention, the way Whoopi Goldberg delivers that line almost implies that she's lying. I have no doubt whatsoever from an out-of-character perspective that they hadn't written the Picard-Guinan dynamic yet. That that wasn't a thing in the mind, mind of the writers. That would develop later. But it is interesting how much it lines up at the time. Because it's really easy to believe that Guinan lied to Wesley just to preserve the privacy, excuse me, the privacy of Picard and the, the relationship the two have with each other. In other words, she understands and respects him in his position and doesn't want to put him in a weird position of having everyone on his ship know that he is deeply connected with this person who's a bartender. People are going to treat her differently that way, and people are going to treat him differently. And if you pay attention, for the most part, most people aren't really made aware of the dynamic between the two, only with a few exceptions, and usually only when things are really serious, right? Just food for thought here. Now, obviously, we all know Whoopi Goldberg was a big fan of Star Trek, the original series, and she was a big fan of TNG as well. And she wanted to be on board. She was a Trekkie, or a Trekker, or whatever the hell she wanted to call herself at the time. And she really wanted to be on board with this. She happened to know LeVar Burton. LeVar Burton was like, hey, some strings were pulled. And this was the late 80s when Whoopi Goldberg had a not a huge amount of star power, but she had some sway. And so... A, na a name recognition star wanting to be a part of your show, you can understand why they basically pulled some strings to make that happen. Because that is what happened. She was not really supposed to be a part of this. She actually asked back in season one, when season one was wrapping up. And they adjusted things to allow for her to be on the show because this was a big win from the producer's mindset. Having Whoopi Goldberg being on TNG was awesome. 
Now, that's all from an out-of-character, you know, uh, financial perspective, you know, wanting ratings and wanting viewings. I will say from a purely creative standpoint, and someone who just watches the show, I think that, luckily, it was a good move. Whoopi Goldberg was a fan of Star Trek, and it shows in her respect for the material and the reverence and weight she gives her role. Pretty much never does Guinan come across as someone who is blasé, or basically doesn't... What I'm trying to say is that Whoopi Goldberg always puts forth her best when she's in that role. In fact, I will go so far as to say, with all of the many issues that Star Trek Generations has, Star Trek Seven, Whoopi Goldberg's uh, con contribution to that is not in that list of problems, because she still took it seriously and still gave it her all. So I think the introduction of Guinan was awesome, and I don't think I'm... <laughs> I think most people will actually agree with me on that standing. Um... And that brings me to the second Wesley scene. She has this great scene where we see the role that she already automatically and so smoothly and naturally slips into. The role of the wise advisor. The role of someone who is really good at reading people and therefore is able to tell people what they need to hear to help them. It's actually... Uh, well, I, you know what, I don't get into that, but... <laughs> There are other characters in DS9 who could be argued to have the same role. That's where I was going to go with that. But anyways, and so the way she talks to Wesley about his problem is awesome. This is the third time you've asked me what drink I want. Well, yeah, it's expected of me. Yeah, but... And that just bulls into this dynamic because too often I felt in fiction an answer will be given definitively. You should do X or you should do Y, depending on the circumstances. What Guinan says is much more nuanced. Sometimes you need to do what's expected of you. Sometimes you need to be a little more selfish. In other words, she posits the very same mentality that I champion as my personal philosophy, that it all depends on the circumstances. And therefore you should approach each situation as its own individual situation and say, right now, for this, this is what I'm going to do. I like that. And it is, of course, what Wesley needed to hear. Because Wesley was willing to go back not to continue his career. Remember, he's not a part of Starfleet yet. He hasn't actually passed the exam or actually joined the Corps. He is not part of the Academy. So his going back home would basically be just him hanging out, studying, and being with his mother. He wants to stay here for himself because he wants to be on the Enterprise, for himself because he wants to be on the cutting edge of exploration in the galaxy, and for his career because he wants this amazing... I mean, this is basically the internship that people dream of in real life, too, I'm sure. No, seriously, wouldn't it be kind of awesome to intern on the Enterprise D? Admit it, it would be kind of awesome. So, yeah, this is something that he wants, and not just, yeah, I want it, I want it. It's not at the expense of anyone. It's just the choice he makes in this moment. And I like that, and I like the way she kind of guides him towards that. It's good stuff. I don't have anything else to add. Ladies and gentlemen, we have officially reached Season 2, where I don't hate Pulaski and I don't hate the first episode. Apparently I have secretly fallen to the mere universe. Oh god, I totally should have grown out my beard for this episode. Anyways, I hope you have enjoyed my insane ramblings, and I'll see you guys next time.